0: Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. We're going to continue this morning in our series that we've been on for the past two weeks. This is our summer series that we've been spending some time on who can tell me what the name of the series is better very good amen as i like to say that's the time where we find out who takes notes and who doesn't take notes this series called better has been thus far a trip through the book of hebrews and it's been very exciting because we get to see some stuff in the new testament that just to me is, is mind-blowing. I mean, it's just overwhelming. The, the content, the depth, the, the meatiness, if you will, of the book of Hebrews. It's such a rich book. I said uh, on the, in the first week, uh, I said that um, this, to me, my opinion, is that this is the richest, deepest book in the whole of the Bible. Uh, I really believe that that's true, and the reason is that... Um, it 's got i don 't want to say this and not sound like a college professor um, it 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 contains the most presupposition of any book that i 'm aware of in scripture, in other words, the writer of Hebrews presupposes a lot of things there are a lot of things he or she whoever wrote it does not take time to spell out for us. They suppose that we know who Abraham is. They suppose that we know who Moses is and who Joshua and Caleb and Daniel and Gideon and all these New Te- uh, Old Testament heroes that are talked about in this book. They, the writer of Hebrews presupposes that we already know all this stuff which makes it a very challenging book to work your way through because almost every verse and almost every phrase has something connected to it in the Old Testament. So you find yourself having to go back and forth between the book of Hebrews and the Old Testament over and over and over, back and forth, back and forth, just to grasp what they're writing. And so for that reason, I believe it to be perhaps the the deepest book in the whole New Testament because of all that is connected it's like it's like Hebrews has all these fingers shooting out of it and each one of them's touching something different in Judaism in the in the history of Israel. And so we we do ourselves a great benefit when we study this book and and read it against what's in the Old Testament and compare. Did you know that that's how you rightly divide scripture? You remember Paul tells Timothy in first in first Timothy chapter 2 he says study to show yourself approved a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does it mean to rightly divide the scripture? Well, let me ask you this. How do you divide a number? By another number. Thank you. You divide a number by another number. Ten divided by five is two, right? That was, I know that was a tough one, wasn't it? <laughs> 10 divided by five is two. What do you do? You take this number and you divide it by this number. That's how you divide scripture. That's how you rightly divide or rightly understand, rightly interpret what the Bible says is you take what it says over here and you measure it against what it says over here. You look at Hebrews and then you go back to Leviticus and then you look at Hebrews and you go back to Deuteronomy and you look at Hebrews and you go back to First and Second Samuel. You, you divide this scripture by the rest of scripture. If you do that, you'll always stay accurate biblically. Amen. If you do that, you'll always be in the right track. So we've been talking through the book of Hebrews, and just a real quick review before we get into chapters three and four today, or the rest of chapter three and chapter four. Quick review. We said a couple of weeks ago during the introduction that Jesus, this book is all about Jesus being revealed Amen. You remember my analogy, my HGTV analogy? If you ever watch HGTV, you've seen when they get done remodeling a house and what do they do? They do a big reveal, right? Chip and Joanna Gaines get out there in the street and there's a big, giant, massive billboard of what the house used to look like. And then they, you know, the billboard parts and you see what it is now. There's a big unveiling that happens. That is the the content and the context of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is God's big reveal. Amen? Jesus is God's big reveal. It's all about him. He's the reason that God decided to create the world. He's the reason that God decided to create the universe and populate it with people so that he could reveal his son to those people. Amen. It's amazing. And we said that Hebrews was written for the purpose of disconnecting these precious Jewish believers in the first century who were receiving all kinds of persecution, and they were going through all kinds of challenges. They were beginning to doubt whether or not, or they were beginning to question whether or not Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Did we put our trust in the right guy? And the writer of Hebrews is writing specifically to convince them that Jesus is in fact better than the tabernacle, he's better than the high priest, he's better than the sacrifices, he's better than all of the tenets of the Jewish tradition. He's endeavoring to, uh, to convince them, you made the right choice. Jesus is truly God's big reveal. He's the Messiah you've been waiting for. Don't turn loose, don't let go. That's why you you see throughout the book of Hebrews these words, hold fast. Hold fast. What does it mean to hold fast? It means to clamp down, man. Grab and don't let go of Jesus. Hold on to Jesus and don't let go. Amen. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is, in fact, better than all the old tenets of Judaism. Now... Last week, we talked about the, the, um, the differentiation between sonship and servanthood. Do you remember that? That was powerful, wasn't it? I mean, if you know that sonship is better than servanthood? Jesus demonstrated as a son what it meant to trust in God, and he compares himself to angels and to Moses in, the first, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Actually... The most of chapter one, all of chapter two, and part of chapter three. He's compared, the son is compared to the servant. He's compared to the angels who are servants. He's compared to Moses, who was a servant. And the conclusion we come to is that sonship is greater than servanthood. Why? Because a servant does not have an inheritance. Amen. A servant does not have an inheritance. A servant's identity is found... In their service. Their whole identity is tied to their service. And if you and I take that attitude and that mindset as believers, we will get burned out in a hurry. That's where you see pastors get totally burned out. Missionaries go and serve on the field and they get burned out and they come home with empty pockets and empty hearts and they're just frazzled. Why? Because oftentimes our identity as ministers or as people that serve, if you're a volunteer, if you're called to do something that, uh, you know, that's involved in ministry work, you can really easily get burned out if your identity is tied to your service. All right? Because what happens when the service is not appreciated? What happens? What happens when nobody smiles at you and when you greeted them on the way in? What happens when nobody says, thank you, pastor? That was such a great encouraging message. Will you get discouraged? Is your identity tied to your service? You see, for a servant, their identity is tied to their service. A son's identity is found in their father. Amen? The son's identity is found in the father, in who the father's revealed himself to be, in the nature that the father has revealed. Your identity, my identity as children of God is directly connected to the nature of God that he's revealed to us through his son, Jesus. Jesus is better, amen? Now, we're gonna, I could just preach that for the rest of the day, but we've already done that, so we're not going to. We need to move forward into the conclusion of chapter three and into the bulk of chapter four today. And as we do that, we're going to begin to shift a little bit. The writer is shifting from servanthood and sonship now to talking about rest. And so my title for today's message is rest is better than dead works. Rest is better than dead works. The writer moves in chapter 3, right about verse 7, and down through the remainder of the chapter, he moves into the story of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, do you remember that story? God miraculously brings the nation of Israel out of a four-century-long bout of slavery. That is twice as long as America has been a country. Think about the distance of time between you and George Washington. (laughs) That's a long time, right? That is only a little more than half of how long the nation of Israel was enslaved by Egypt. So you have literally 10, 15, 18 generations or more of people who all they ever knew was slavery, bondage. What kind of mindset do you think that would put in a person? If your grandfather, your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, your great-great-great-grandfather, and your his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, if all you ever knew was brick building, you know, pyramid building, that would put a a very interesting mindset at work in your life and in my life. I've heard this said since childhood. It only took God a moment to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. There was a mindset that was built in, that was programmed from slavery into this nation of Israel, into these people. i am come to tell you, I see that happen in in today's world, except it's not necessarily the uh, programming of slavery, but it is, however, the programming of religion. That we're taught religion from generation to generation to generation, we're taught tradition and form that maybe it started out as something good, but through the years has been sucked dry of its life. That's why Jesus said, you have a form of godliness, or excuse me, Paul said, you have a form of godliness, but you deny the power that's in it. You deny the power of God by elevating the form above the person of Jesus. Nothing wrong with tradition. There's something wrong when we worship the tradition instead of worshiping Jesus, amen? Now, that sometimes happens. That gets programmed into people's thinking. And so, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. They have multiple opportunities to cross into the, you know, cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And what happens, do you remember? They choose to believe a lie. They choose to believe, well, let me put it this way. It wasn't a lie, per se, it was the facts, They choose to believe the facts. You remember the 12 spies, one from each of the different tribes of Israel? They go into the promised land, they spy out the land, and 10 of them come back and say, man, there's giants. They're so big that we felt like grasshoppers. That's how big they were. There's giants. Moses, we can't do this. There's giants. But Joshua and Caleb come back, and they say, yeah, there's giants, giant grapes, giant pomegranates, giant tracts of land waiting to be conquered, giant cities that are just waiting for us to occupy. You know, you can look at the same scenario with two perspectives. Come on, that's, that's good preaching right there. You can look at the same scenario with two completely different perspectives. Are you seeing it from your perspective or are you seeing it from God's perspective? You can look at a problem one of two ways. You can either see things through the lens of what the Bible says, or you can see things just the way they appear to be. And whichever one you side with is the one that's going to have dominance in your life. Amen. If you side with fear, you're going to always be afraid. If you side with faith and with the word, you're always going to be filled with faith. Amen. So they go in and they come back with this mixed report. You know what the word doubt means? Did you ever notice that the first four letters of the word doubt are D-O-U-B, which is the same first four letters of the word double? The idea of doubt is that there are more than one, multiple competing opinions vying for your focus. When you enter into doubt, what's happening is the enemy is trying to introduce options. Options other than the word of God What's behind curtain number A and B and C and D and E and F and G? He'll give you as many options as it takes to get your focus off the one thing that God wants you to be after. Amen. Amen. That's how doubt works. That's why James says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We need to commit to what the Bible says and allow that to be the only voice that has merit in our lives. Amen. Now, it's taking me a long time to get to rest. So they get, <laughs> they get to this place where they you know, need to go into the, the um, promised land. And, and because of their disobedience, because they chose to believe contrary to what God had said, they were locked out of the promised land for 40 years. Somebody told me that it was like a 13 or a 17 day trip from Egypt to the Jordan River. It's a long trip if it takes 40 years, amen? That's a long time. If it should have been 17 days and it took 40 years, you made a wrong turn, right? Amen. So now we pick up this story. Let's start in verse 10 because I want you to see what, I want you to see God's response to this. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 10 says, therefore I was angry with that generation, I don't want God to be angry at me, do you? Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. What a statement. They always go astray in their heart. Notice, God's motive, his motivation was their motivation. The thing he was watching was whatever they were motivated by, whatever their heart was condition was. You know, you can have the right actions in the wrong heart. Like, like one child I heard say, I think it was Bill Cosby talking about this. And he was talking about, you know, getting whooped as a child. And, and his mother was telling him to sit down, sit down. He kept standing up or something. He was, sit down, sit down, sit down. And finally he sat down and he was grumpy about it. And he looked at his mother and he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. How many of you know the heart of a matter is more important than the outward appearance? God says they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, look at verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I want you to see that God was not angry with their actions. He was angry with their heart. He was frustrated with their heart. Why? Because their heart was consumed with unbelief. They went astray in their actions, they departed from the living God in their actions because they had already departed from the living God in their heart. They couldn 't enter the rest physically because inside they 'd already put up walls of unbelief. God saw, says in verse 11 or verse twelve that it 's an evil heart of unbelief. So the writer exhorts us, "Exhort one another daily. That word exhort means to encourage. Encourage one another daily. You married couples, encourage your spouse to walk by faith. Encourage each other, encourage your children to walk by faith. Honey, we're going to believe God. Why? Because that's what the Bible says to do. Let's believe God together. Stir them up, encourage them, strengthen them, say this is what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that we're believing God. Encourage one another while it's called today. Now, what I want you to see from this passage, and again, let's read verse 19 real quickly and I'll make a couple more comments. Verse 19 says, so we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. They could not enter into the promise of God because unbelief stopped them. Right? Now, what does this have to do with rest? Well, the, the concept of rest, let me give you what the Greek word is real quickly. It's the word katapausis in the Greek, katapausis. You'll want to write that down, there'll be a test at the end of the sermon, so katapausis. We actually, the, 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 the root word there, pausis, we actually get the word pause from it. in the the English language. Kata means to come down on something or to to rain down on something. And um, so this idea of kata pausis means to forcefully introduce a rest or a pause or a stop. The definition from from Young's Concordance says uh, that rest means to put something at rest or to calm the winds. How many of you know when Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves, he was issuing rest to the world around him? He was commanding the atmosphere around him to rest. Calming the winds. also means a resting place. I wrote this as a definition in my notes. It's the state of peace and confidence that a person has when they walk by faith. What does it mean to be in rest? It's the state of peace and the state of confidence that a person has when they walk by faith. Now you notice right away that unbelief keeps you out of this place of rest. It keeps you out of this confident relaxation. Amen. You know that when you're believing God to do something for you, you don't have to try to do it for yourself. Amen. If you're believing God for victory in a certain area, You don't have to provide the victory because you're believing him to do that, right? Did you know that you don't have to answer your own prayers? Praise God. (laughs) Amen. Isn't that cool? Lord, I thank you for A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me go figure out how I'm going to make it happen. That's what most of us do. This is what a lot of us do. We don't enter into rest because we haven't stepped through faith. There's this barrier called unbelief. We're praying the right thing. We're asking the right thing. We're saying, God, I need this. Your word says this. I appreciate it. I believe it. I receive it in Jesus' name. I'm going to go figure out how to do it mm that's not the way this works. You see, there's a rest to faith. When I put all my eggs in his basket and I say, Lord, I'm giving you control of this. I'm asking you for guidance. I'm giving you, uh, you know, the, the open door of directing my life. I'm receiving by faith the answer to this problem. And then you know what? You cast all your care of it onto God and you let him work it out. And you Rest. Do you, you know Jesus was sleeping in the boat before he got up to speak to the wind and the waves? I, I, I was reminded of this by a preacher that I really like. He said, you know, this wasn't like a 40-foot cabin cruiser. <laughs> it was an open fishing boat. It was probably about 14 feet long. There wasn't multiple decks We have this idea of Jesus, you know, asleep in the boat and he's in some palatial pillow, you know, like relaxing, and he doesn't, he's not even aware of the wind and the waves. He's just, no, I believe Jesus was so exhausted from ministry physically that he needed to take a minute and force himself to sleep because he knew we're going to the other side, and when we get there, there's going to be some demoniacs that need to be free, and I got to be on my game, so I'm going to go lay down for a bit. But Jesus, it's raining, it's raining. He knows it's raining, he's on the same boat. He wasn't below deck in the, you know, in the cabin's quarters. No, he was right there getting hit in the face by the same water, but he was sleeping by faith. He was at rest. Why? Because he had said to the disciples, let's go to the other side. So as far as he was considered, that's where they were going. As far as he considered, we're already already on our way. Nothing is going to stop me from getting where I need to go. See, that's the attitude of faith that you and I need to have in order to rest through a storm. Amen? You need to be so convicted and so convinced and so established in the fact that what this word says is true, that you can sleep through hell. Amen? Be like Jesus. Put a pause button. Hit the pause button on your toil and on your dead works. That's what, peace, that's what rest means, to pause, to initiate a pause. It's peace and confidence. <clears throat> it's the peace and confidence that a person has when they walk by faith. The first point that I want you to understand about rest is that unbelief will keep you out of it. It begins and ends in the heart of a person. The heart is where a person either draws near to God or departs from him. You can see it in verse 10. He said they always go astray in their heart. And then in verse 12 he says, don't let an evil heart of unbelief be in you in departing from the living God. We depart outwardly once we've already departed inwardly. So unbelief will keep us out of rest. Number two thing that I want us to understand is that entering into rest is ceasing from dead works. Now, we've got to jump into chapter 4 from here, so I want you to go from, uh, from where you're at down to verse number 9 of chapter 4. Verse number 9 of chapter 4, and we'll also read verse 10. It says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has ceased himself, or excuse me, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God for he who has entered into God's rest has himself also ceased from his works the same way God did from his. Rest is ceasing from the works of which God has already rested from. You want me to break it down for you in good old Wataga English? Quit trying to do what God has already done. If God rested from his work, why are you trying to do something he already decided he was going to rest from? Why would we ever try to produce something that God's already produced and retired from? You know, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, right? Why would we try to pick something up that Jesus already completed and attempt to do it for ourselves? You don't have to answer your own prayer. Amen. We get the easy part, guys. We get the easy part. We get to believe and receive. He gets to perform. Amen. That's what rest is all about. He gets to perform on our behalf. Actually, you could take it even a step farther. He already has performed on our behalf, and we get to believe and receive our way into what he is resting from. God's not working on a bunch of stuff. He's already done it. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. We read that in the first verse of Hebrews 1. He's sat down. His work is done, and you've been seated with him. Your work is done, too. You don't, listen, every time you sin, Jesus doesn't have to get back on the cross again, right? Every time you miss it, Jesus doesn't have to go back before the Father and say, Lord, I gotta go back down. I gotta go back down and fix all the junk that Josh just created by sinning again. I guess I'm gonna have to go back to the cross. mm No, what he did had finality to it. He finished the job. God is resting from his labor. Don't you try to do something he's already done and decided to rest from. Amen. Now, this can raise some questions. I don't know if you think this way, but I think this way. As I've studied and understood the concept of rest, it's raised questions in my mind. Namely, if I'm supposed to rest from my works, why does the Bible tell me in other places to work? Why does verse 11 start by saying, let us therefore be diligent? If I'm supposed to rest from my works, why does the Bible in other places tell me that I need to work? John chapter 6, Jesus talks about doing the works of God. John chapter 14, verse 12, you know this. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these, because I go to the Father. James tells us, faith without works is dead. Right? Paul talks about the work of the ministry. Anybody that's ever been in ministry for more than 17 seconds knows that ministry is work. Like Ken Jr. used to say, How do you spell ministry? W O R K. So wait a minute, wait a minute. This is confusing. If the Bible tells me that God Himself has rested and ceased from His work, and that I'm by faith supposed to enter into that same rest and stop working, then why would the Bible tell me that I'm supposed to work? Is the Bible conflicting itself? James teaches us that faith without works is dead, and Hebrews tells us that we cease from dead works by faith. Are they conflicting? They're only conflicting if we don't understand grace. They're only conflicting if we don't understand grace. I've had this idea in my head for the last several, most of this week, this past week. Hebrews talks about dead works. James talks about dead faith. They would seem to be in opposition of each other. But they're only in opposition if we have a misunderstanding of how grace actually works. You see, let me define these two ideas for you, dead works and dead faith. You all tracking with me so far? Have you all ever felt confused by this when you read this kind of language and go, man, it seems like the Bible's butting heads with itself. Let me just put this to rest for you once and for all. The Bible never conflicts itself, ever, Even when it appears to, we have to remember, God wrote this, not a bunch of people. He used a bunch of people to write it. But this is his work. This is his master plan. This is Jesus in print, okay? Don't ever question whether or not the Bible's conflicting itself. If you have a question, go back into the word and seek out and search out the answer because God will show it to you from his word. That's how he works. That's the first place he speaks to us. I'm all about getting prophesied over. I'm all about somebody giving me an encouraging word that helps me. But you know what? If it doesn't line up to this, throw it away. It's junk if it can't be found in these pages. Can you say amen to that? So, what do you do when you, when, you, when you stumble upon a conflict such as this? What's this idea of dead faith and dead works? Well, again, it comes back to our understanding of grace. Dead works, as being addressed here in Hebrews, dead works is when you try to do something God has already done. When you try to be your own healer, When you try to be your own provider, when you try to be your own Jehovah, that's a dead work. It doesn't produce anything. When you're keeping score and tallying, oh, I'm almost there. If I could just pray another extra 10 minutes, I'll be there. If I could just put a little more effort into this, then I'll be righteous then I'll be complete. No, you're complete because the Bible said you're complete because Jesus made you complete. Oh, but I don't feel complete. No, no, no. You're missing faith. You're staying out of the rest. You got to understand it's not about how you feel. It's not about whether or not everything looks the way that it's supposed to. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, we don't look at the things which are seen. We look at the things which are unseen because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Everything that you see was made by things you can't see. Amen. Amen. Everything you see was made by stuff that you can't see. Which do you think is greater? The creation or the creator? All right. Y'all with me so far? All right, don't check out on me. I got somewhere to take you. Dead works is when you try to do something God has already done. Dead faith is when you use grace as an excuse to be spiritually unproductive and lazy. Dead faith is when you use grace as an excuse to be spiritually unproductive and lazy. Well, God's already done all the work, so I'm just going to sit here on a hammock until all my dreams come true. <laughs> no, you know what? Nobody gets the gospel preached to them if you do that. Nobody gets, you're never going to get beyond the hammock if you stay there. Amen? And I hear this all the time. God, you know, the, the Spirit of God has, over the last six, seven, eight years, there's been such an intense emphasis on the message of grace, and it has been amazing. Amazing. I don't know if you've paid attention to it the way I have, but man, people have been preaching grace and there's been such revelation that's come out of it. You see, grace is God's side of the equation and faith is our side of the equation. We have to put faith in what grace has already done. But the problem happens when people abuse faith and try to enter into some kind of work to get righteous. That's, that's abusing faith. And it produces dead works. The other side of the coin, the other problem is when people abuse grace and say, well, Jesus paid it all, so I'm just going to sit here like a bump on a log until something good happens. You're never going to change. You're never going to go beyond that moment. Amen. It takes an understanding of the two. I wrote this in my notes when talking about dead works and dead faith, both conditions of the heart. Notice again, they're conditions of the heart, right? Both of those conditions of the heart will prevent you from the same thing, growth. Both of these issues, dead works on one side, dead faith on the other side, both of them are working in our lives to prevent the same thing, growth. A misunderstanding of grace will produce either one of those two results. Amen. Amen. Either we'll abuse the message of grace and become lazy or we'll abuse uh, understanding that faith is leading us into what grace has already provided and we miss rest and we miss growth. That's why the title of the message is that rest is better than dead works. You're not going to work yourself into what God's already done. Jesus already did the heavy lifting. Amen. So how do we fix it? How do we fix this issue, this idea of this competition between dead works over here and dead faith over here? How do we stay balanced and stay out of the gutter on either side? Lord, I don't wanna wanna have faith without works and that be dead. And I don't wanna abuse works and try to miss and, and end up missing your rest and missing growth. How do we fix this? How do we enter into the rest of God living free from dead works? Living free from dead faith. How do we do it? I'm glad you asked. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. How are you going to do it? Verse 12 gives you the answer. For the word of God is living and powerful. Sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How are you going to stay out of dead works and stay out of dead faith? It's only going to happen by the Word of God. It's only going to happen because His Word is living and it's powerful. It's living so it keeps you out of dead works. It's powerful so it keeps you out of dead faith. Glory to God. It's living and it's powerful. It's both alive and relevant now and it will be for all of eternity. You know, Tim and I were having a conversation one time and we are talking about this idea. This was years ago. I think he had started being involved in, uh, I think he was like pastoring the youth at Shining Light for a little while, if I remember correctly. He and his wife were working with the young people. And so Tim, this, Sean's younger brother, Tim. And um, we, were, we were talking, he had been working with the youth for a while, and we were talking about this idea of relevance. Was like, how can we be relevant? How can we be relevant to a generation? Well, we're getting ready to start a youth group here, so those who are involved, pay attention. <laughs> how, can we, how can we be relevant to a generation? There's one way, only one way to be relevant. It has nothing to do with the smoke machine and the band and the logos and the lights and all the games and all the stuff we prepare and pizza parties and lock-ins. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Those are all nice things. Those are nice add-ons. But the one thing that will make you relevant is the fact that God's word doesn't get dull. Look at what he says here. The word of God is living and it's powerful. It's it's strong enough to keep you out of dead works and keep you out of dead faith. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. We were talking, I said, Tim, you know what the Lord's been talking to me about? He said, my word doesn't get dull. It's always relevant to every generation because it can't get dull. How are you gonna stay free from bondage? How are you gonna stay free from legalism? How are you gonna receive the benefits of grace and walk in the power of faith and step out of the wilderness into the promise? How are you gonna do it? By the word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I love what the second half of this verse says it says that it pierces even the division of soul and spirit that is amazing to me because the division between your soul and spirit is an internal thing it's the difference between your heart and your head your soul is your mind your will and your emotions your 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 uh, habits and your ideas your ideologies why you think the way that you think that's all your soul and then your spirit man is your heart, the heart the, the place that God is really looking after. Remember? He said this one goes astray in their heart. So there's this, this soul that you possess and this spirit that you are. And sometimes it's hard to discern who's talking to me, my heart or my head. If you've ever had to make a decision in life as a Christian, you know that this is true. Sometimes you're going, is this my spirit? Is this God speaking to me on the inside? Or is this my head just calculating? And again, remember, I told you the devil would love to introduce doubt up here, give you 25 different options, and all of them but one are wrong. (laughs) Right? All of them but one will cause you to miss God's will. And then there's this one that's going to require some faith for you. But when you do it, you'll rest all the way through it. It won't be a bunch of effort. It won't be a bunch of strain. The Bible speaks of Jesus approaching the apostles who are on the lake in the midst of a storm. You remember he walks on water and the Bible says he finds them straining, toiling at the oars. That's what a lot of people's lives are like when they don't walk by faith, when they haven't learned to rest in and trust in the grace of God. What I love is that it says that the word of God penetrates. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And just like a scalpel, it will penetrate the division, the division of soul and spirit. It goes right to the place where your spirit and your soul meet. And it will discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It will discern between your thoughts and between what your heart is receiving from God. Guys, that is one of the biggest revelations you can ever get in your whole life. You need to say amen. I want to make sure you get this. If you don't hear anything else that I've said today, get this. The word of God is able to penetrate the very depth of your being and discern for you what is just your thoughts and what is the intents of your heart. Amen? It's why? Because it's powerful and it's living and it doesn't get dull. If it worked for you 25 years ago, it'll work for you tomorrow. Right? It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God gave us His Word so that we could, by faith, enter into the rest of grace. Don't use grace and manipulate it to give you an excuse to be lazy and don't turn faith into a bunch of works. Don't try to do what God's already done. Rest in what he's done. Do what only you can do, which is to receive and enter into the rest of grace. How do I do it, pastor? Stay in the word. Get in the word, go back to 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 the word until your thoughts and the intentions of your heart become crystal clear and you can say, no, I know that's just my head. I know that's just fear trying to creep in. I know that's just a thought that I'm having. How do I know? Because I've become so familiar with his voice in these pages that when he speaks to my heart, I can easily discern what's his voice and what's my thinking. That's how you enter into rest. And let me tell you, rest is way better than dead works. Amen? Now, next week, we're getting into the fact that Jesus is a better high priest. Trust me. You don't want to miss it. I purposely left out chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Because it talks all about the throne of grace and entering into the presence of God. Jesus is the priest who is better than every other priest that ever lived. He did his job once and it was so effective that it affects all of eternity. You don't want to miss it. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, Check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.